The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein from Brooklyn, New York. I'm broadcasting from my corporate office in Brooklyn. Uh, today's topic is unusual. It is about... Uh, for lack of a more sophisticated way of describing it, is uh, the use of recreational substances in prehistoric North America. Uh, my guest is a specialist in the topic, and uh, he is Dr. Sean Rafferty, who is trained as a specialist in the archaeology of prehistoric Eastern North America. Uh, Dr. Rafferty has conducted excavations throughout New York State, which is where he's based, and on a variety of archaeological sites. He's conducted substantial laboratory as well as field research using techniques from chemistry and physics to understand the function of ancient artifacts. Sean received his bachelor's in anthropology from Hartwick College and his master's and Ph.D. from Binghamton University. He joined the University of Albany as an assistant professor of anthropology in 2002. Within Eastern North America, he is particularly interested in the interplay between ritual practices and cultural variability, especially within the area of mortuary practices and smoking rituals. Uh, Dr. Rafferty, welcome to the program. Hey, Joe. Thanks so much for having me on. So let me ask you, how did you get into the sort of association between mortuary practice and smoking? Well, like a lot of the, um, you know, the fundamental things that happen to people in life, it was, it was pretty much a total accident. Um, I had just finished my master's degree at Binghamton, and, and that was looking at um, a lithic technology project, uh, looking at Debitage flake analysis of um, of these giant chert hoes they use for for agriculture in the um, late prehistory. So I'd gotten done analyzing tens of thousands of flakes under a magnifying glass over several years, and I knew that uh, whatever I did for my PhD, it was going to be something else other than um, <laughs> other than that. Um, and I was just kind of floundering a little bit, um, you know, waiting to see what projects might come along when on, on an unrelated 
issue. I called uh, an old advisor of mine from Hartwick College, Dave Anthony, um, and we're just talking, and in the middle of that conversation, he asked me, oh, by the way, do you need a dissertation topic? And really? as it happened, I did. So I told him uh-huh. that. And uh, he had just happened to come into possession of some samples of, of uh, residue from some smoking pipes from a site called the Boucher Cemetery located in Vermont. It's one of the, um, one of the oldest well-preserved cemetery sites in the region with several dozen uh, burials that, that date to as early as um, a, oh, 1,000 to 1,100 B.C. And with a lot of those burials there, uh, smoking pipes were buried. Um, and uh, they took the burials out in blocks and excavated them in the lab. So they had really remarkable preservation to deal with and a lot of residue samples from several of the pipes. And it was hoped that someone could could come up with a protocol to extract um, chemicals from those residues and ascertain what plants they were uh, originally drawn from. And I ended up, you know, being the guy who did that. So you got into this. I, I guess one of the interesting elements of this, and and I've seen it in your work, and I've seen it generally across the archaeological research spectrum is that smoking is ubiquitous almost anywhere and and across eastern North America, in the West, everybody's doing it, as they say, and there is is variability clearly um, from a variety of different ways, and I'm sure that the design and uh, maybe even the technology of manufacture may be a little bit different. But how do you explain that, and how did you get into uh, the specifics of trying to identify the types of residues that were there? Well, that's a couple of, a couple of issues there. One, one is just sort of what I'm going to call kind of a human universal um, Anthropologists get a little hesitant talking about universal universal behaviors, but sure. um, one of them that I think where there's considerable evidence is that humans will strive to achieve altered states of consciousness somehow. Um, it's it's something that I I think we're hardwired to do. Um, you, you know, you don't find cultures historically that that you know have no history, no tradition of, of um, altered states through some means, even if it is of, of non-chemical means, but a chemical approach is certainly most, uh, most easily uh, achieved. Um, so tobacco has fulfilled that role of the, um, the, uh, the altered state, the, the, the drug, basically, the, the drug of choice for an entire continent. And that has led to a question, you know, North America is actually kind of an outlier in that regards. If you look at almost any other culture area throughout Asia and Africa and Europe, it's usually alcohol. Alcohol sure. is usually the, the, the go-to um, intoxicant. Uh, but there's almost no history at all of intoxicant of, of alcohol use in um, in North America, little bit in South and Central America, uh, and the reason there, I I think, is that um, tobacco was discovered before uh, any kind of equivalent kind of, if you'll forgive the term, Neolithic rev- revolution in the Americas. Before you've got any kind of cereal agriculture, you had tobacco, which is such a uh, pervasive 
substance, and it's so um, well addictive that I think it pretty rapidly, um, you know, takes over that niche of of, uh, of favorite intoxicant and and sort of blocked uh, alcohol from taking root at any point. So tell us a little bit about early tobacco and and most people, I assume, anybody who's studied history, American history knows that uh, tobacco is dominantly grown in the southeastern United States. Tell us a little bit about indigenous tobacco, sure. if there is such a thing, and, and how it came to be found, how, how it was found and how it was initially used, and how you found it, uh, you discovered it in terms of your, I assume, your residue studies. Sure. Well, the first thing I would suggest is that your listeners sort of forget everything they think they know about tobacco from personal experience, the reason being that the um, the plant which um, Europeans and post-contact people are familiar with is a totally different species than what I'm talking about for prehistoric and early historic Native America. That's a species, um, uh, historically, we're, f- we're familiar with a plant called uh, Nicotiana tobaccum. Um, and uh, that's actually a warmer weather uh, tolerant plant grown in the southeast and in the Indies. Um, it's also got a, a fairly mild uh, smoke as compared to the native material, and importantly for our um, our purposes here, it has a much lower uh, concentration of nicotine, um, uh-huh. you know, like like ten percent of the uh, of the concentration of nicotine. Now, native tobacco, as it is commonly referred, uh, or Indian tobacco somewhat less politically correct, but that's what you'll usually see it called, um, is uh, Nicotiana rustica. And it's pretty harsh. Uh, It's got a pretty burning uh, smoke, Um, but it will alter your your state of consciousness. I mean, I've I've tried it uh, on on a few occasions, and, um, you know, I was never a heavy cigarette smoker, but I, you know, did back in my teenage years as well. And, you know, it, it's, it's very obviously something different. Um, there have been some studies that show that sufficient dosages of nicotine will cause um, severe physiological uh, effects, uh, you know, vasodilation, um, loss of equilibrium, um, up, up to the point of, of actual audio and visual hallucinations. So it can be, you know, not not just a uh, a relaxant and in a recreational context, but with this, um, if you smoke enough of the Nicotiana rustica Indian tobacco, um, you know, you're 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 approaching the the sort of um, hallucinatory. Uh, impact that you might have from some of the more potent hallucinogens that you have down in South America, like Banisteriopsis or or um, uh, or uh, uh, Datura or other kinds of of, uh, of entheogens. Mm-hmm. And so it would be the difference. Say, would you say that the difference between say domesticated and uh, indigenous or, or pre-domesticated variants is? Just, just for for people to sort of get a grasp, is the difference between a buzz and a high, or is it is it is it uh, much stronger than that? If you're saying it's hallucinogenic, then obviously it's a level above that. Yeah. Well, I mean, like with any drug, the secrets, the the dosage, the dosage is everything. Um, of course. You know, yeah, you could the. Um, 
I mean, if you look at the at the the Jesuit relations, for example, which which are um, you know 17th century documents maintained by by French Jesuit priests um, who who were uh, trying to convert the uh, the various Algonquin speaking groups in in uh, in southeastern Canada, um, there's a lot of there there's uh, discussions in there about natives smoking. To the point that they became stupefied and like fell in the fire and stuff, you know. Uh, really? Yeah, clearly. Um, I mean, it sounds like they're drunk. It sounds like they're describing a person who's alcohol in- intoxicated. Sure. Now, obviously, one has to take a you know any kind of ethno-historic account like that with a certain degree of of, cri- of critical perspective. Um, but if you read enough about it, it, it you, you get a, a message of something that's really quite a bit more potent than tobacco in the sense that um that we think of it and um you know i think in general we don't really have a lot of appreciation of just how potent nicotine is as a um as a drug compound i like to tell uh students i work with that um one microgram one millionth of a gram um will uh be um will have an effect on their physiology. They'll actually feel that. It'll give them that, that buzz. And um, two drops of pure nicotine um, can kill you. I mean, it can kill a horse. It's, it's, uh, it's so, uh, it has such an effect on, on uh, the uh, communication between neurons by, by changing the, the concentrations of neurotransmitters. Um, so we're talking, you know, an extremely potent compound that's actually present in very small quantities in the actual plant, but it's so it's so darn potent that even a little bit goes goes a really really long way. And we will we be back with our special guest Dr. Sean Rafferty and our discussion on hallucinogens and smoking in prehistoric North America and beyond, I would say, after these words. Please stay tuned. Voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We are back on Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. My guest, Dr. Sean Rafferty, who is at the University of Albany here in New York State, is a specialist on, uh, for lack of a better word, recreational substances, which what we would call them today. And we've been talking about the emergence and use of indigenous variants of tobacco in North America. Sean, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the differences between the two types? I mean, you're starting to get into it. When the Native Americans were here, what kind of tobacco was it, and where did it grow? Um, Nicotiana rustica is primarily the, the, the um, or Indian tobacco, is primarily what you're going to find in, in most of the central and eastern parts of the uh, of the country. And um, if anybody really wants to look at at, uh, at this kind of information, I recommend actually an edited volume book edited by recently deceased, unfortunately, Joe Winter. Um, the book's called Tobacco, Sacred Smoke, and Silent Killer that actually breaks down a lot of, of these various um, substances. Um, but yeah, the uh, the plant in question, Nicotiana rustica, is native to South America. Um, so it's it's uh, it comes from some of the the highland areas of of South America, and we find um, contacts uh, contexts down there that are 2000 BC uh, or so, with some of the oldest dates for um, for tobacco use, and the dates get progressively old uh younger rather the farther north and east that you go if you trace the radiocarbon dates um you know but well, by the time you get into the southwest you're you're starting to get dates that are approaching um around uh 2000 BC also the farther east you go so far the earliest radiocarbon date we have from this region is around 300 uh, BC, and that was one, that was um, a date actually that I took on a uh, on a pipe from um, from Vermont. So that's yeah, that's that's the history. It was basically a South American native cultigen that uh, uh, was probably you know traded through various kinds of exchange networks through Mesoamerica, where it's also known to be popular. Uh, and then made it all the way up into uh, into the Americas, and, and lastly into the Northeast and the Eastern Woodlands in general. But still at a period that was well prior to um, any kind of substantial agriculture uh, in uh, in that area. 
Let me ask you a question. How uh, secure would you think our understanding of the pathway of distributions and the chronology of those distributions of this cultigen are? I mean, are they good enough so that we can say, well, they started to trade with Mesoamerican mm-hmm. groups or they started to uh, expand their reach into eastern North America and into the more northern latitudes uh, at a certain point in time? Do we have a reasonable map of how those distributions occurred? You know, regrettably, the answer to that question is kind of no. Um, there have been really relatively few archaeologists who have looked at the prehistory of intoxicant use in general and in the Americas um, especially. I, I thought at some length about why that is. Um, uh-huh. I don't, I'm not exactly sure, to be honest. I mean, I, I think... Uh, there's still a lot of people who are more interested in subsistence and food um, resources, which is great. Everybody's got to eat. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, there, there are still relatively few people. I mean, if you were like, you know, look at the number of hits in a major journal for tobacco and compare that to maize, you know, I think we know which, which one's going to have, like, you know, a sure. 100 to 1 citation ratio. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I can think of a handful of people looking at at, uh, at tobacco in um, in this country. There's me. There's a woman who is now out of Seattle recently of UC Davis named Shannon Tushingham, and then there's um, you know the the recently departed Dr. Winters. Um, and in general, I find that looking at at drug use in the past has not gotten nearly the attention I think it does in favor of people looking at the use of subsistence resources, uh, food residues, and and food remains in general. Yeah. Well, I I think, though, one of the interesting elements of, of your research clearly is your ability and the potential generally to link up the uh, ubiquitous distribution of, let's just call it indigenous tobacco for now, and ritual. How do you tie that in, and how has our understanding of the use of tobacco and its eventual association with ritual, how has that evolved, and where are we in trying to understand that evolution? Well, um, you know, first I I should say that there there is a massive literature on what exactly is meant when anthropologists and archaeologists use the term ritual and what exactly we we mean by that. We we probably don't need to delve too deeply into that, but um, we can say that you know every culture, again, will ritualize various aspects that could be usually closely related to their religious beliefs, that, that there are certain kinds of events, and funerals are the one that I keep going back to, because they're easy to recognize in the archaeological record. You, you, you've got mm-hmm. a dead person there, you know. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, that there are a certain series of, of things you have to do, things you have to say, and certain kinds of performances that have to be enacted in order for that to be done, well, properly, in order for it to, you know, there's a right way and a wrong way to, to, uh, to deal with, with uh, the, the deceased. And it looks like tobacco played a very important role in Native American funerary rituals almost as far back as we can trace them. And we know this because of smoking pipes. Now, Native American, you'd, you'd, 
you don't need a pipe to smoke, okay? Um, any any high school kid can tell you that. Um, but uh, um, the smoking pipe has become iconic and a, a fundamental drug delivery device, but with significant social implications amongst mm-hmm. Native Americans, and they are at their first um, at their first use going back into the. Um, uh, well, I, I don't want to throw too many time period names out here, but what we call the Archaic period in the East. So we're talking between, going back as far as 5,000 years ago, you find smoking pipes, and they're almost always in human burials. You know, you don't find them in trash heaps. You don't find them in campsites. You don't find them in, in, in settlement uh, uh, loci. You find them with human burials. They seem to be a, a common type of grave inclusion. And that grave association holds really up through... Uh, contact with with Europeans, you know, o- almost five thousand years later. Um, so that that tells me that that smoking was certainly a a fundamental aspect of their life to the point that it was closely identified with one of the most important and fundamental rituals every culture has: their funerary rituals. Um, and with a little bit of extension, I can th- I can hypothesize that the smoking itself probably played a role in the burial ritual itself. That the take. Go ahead, sorry, go ahead. Let me cut you off for just one sure. second. I think um, your research certainly is a focus on ritual and pipes and and smoking. I, I'm just curious that. Uh, getting back to an earlier point that you made, uh, do we know that leading up to Euro-American contact, that smoking was ubiquitous across all areas? Did it expand into the southwest, say, into the plains, um, where areas which we would not normally associate with the uh, cultivation of the plant itself? Yeah, yeah. The answer there is yes. The the um, the ethnohistoric record is pretty clear that whenever European explorers met people, they were using uh, tobacco some way. Even starting with Columbus, the first um, the first people out in in the in the Caribbean to encounter some of those early Spanish explorations were using tobacco. They were chewing it primarily. There wasn't a mm-hmm. heavy use of yeah. The the pipe seems to be a North American Native American thing without a lot of without without um, a lot of that farther south or or east but you know as far west as as they went tobacco is a, a prehistoric um, staple again I have colleagues who work on similarly aged sites as I do but in California they find very similar evidence different shapes different styles of pipes maybe different means of manufacture but Ritualized contexts and and with the similar kinds of of, uh, of compounds of the of uh, you know the, the potent nicotine uh, types of plants. So, what is your what is your interpretation at this point of the significance of pipes and funerary artifact assemblages? Mm-hmm. You know, pipes are I I kind of refer to them as total social artifacts. And I'm ripping off Levi Strauss a little bit with that, uh-huh. um, with the total social facts idea. But, um, you know, pipes have a role, first off, in individual psychology with their use of as a drug delivery device for the individual. 
they're involved in social interaction. Think of the Calumet ritual, the so-called mm-hmm. peace pipe. There was also war pipes. Basically, if there was a major social interaction that had to take place, either you know we're going to trade with these strangers or we're going to kill these strangers, smoking was a part of those decisions. Whenever groups of elders or of senior members of a native group had to make a momentous decision, tobacco would would sort of sanctify those decisions. And the same thing for uh, for interacting with the spirits. The spirits were often seen as hungering for tobacco. An individual might throw tobacco into a river or throw it into a fire to propitiate various spiritual forces and ensure uh, and ensure goodwill. Um, it would uh, it would seem to me from what you're saying that uh, in that sense, using the pipe and smoking tobacco is sort of a way for people to like close a deal, if you will. Parties closing a deal. Uh, you know, I think of, of, of uh, I'm from New York City, so I'm thinking that Peter Minuet and the Native Americans smoked a pipe to close the sale of Manhattan. I mean, that's just a visualization, but. Would you say that that's somewhere in the neighborhood of what might have happened? Yeah, I think that's I think that's spot on. I think that was one major way that that tobacco was was a way of of sanctifying various kinds of interactions and and making them real. It's a way, of, as you say, sealing the deal. It may be a deal with a person. It may be a deal with a deceased person or the spirit thereof. It, it may be a deal with a a purely spiritual entity of some sort. But tobacco and the pipe itself, because the pipe has its own kind of symbolism apart from the tobacco, sure. are both sure. vital to those, those kinds of, of deal-making rituals. And we will be back with Sean Rafferty and our very fascinating discussion on ritual and pipe smoking and other hallucinogenic components uh, right after these words. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host Jordan Kimmel is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. This is Joe Shulton Ryan in a, uh, on a beautiful, lovely summer day, and I'm discussing pipes, smoking, and ritual with my guest, Dr. Sean Rafferty of the University of Albany here in New York State. We've been discussing the very unique development of indigenous uh, pipe smoking, if you will, and amongst uh, Native American populations. And a logical segue here would be what happens when the pipe smokers of Europe meet the pipe smokers of North America. Obviously, this is the Colombian contact, Euro-American Association and Conquest of North America. Uh, What what do we know about that, Sean? What what can... uh, the different pipe smoking traditions of the old world and the new world uh, tell us and, 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 and how would it have been like for uh, Europeans and, and indigenous Native American pipe smokers to meet and sure. let's say compare, compare their viceroys to their camels or yeah. however you want to do that. Yeah, you know, this, this is a, a little outside of, of, of my comfort zone, so any historical listeners may, may, um, may, uh, may have some further information about this. I, I do understand that there is a tradition of, I, I will say, the medicinal use of smoke in old world cultures, if not actual smoking. And you could think, for example, of the use of incense or censers in various kinds of Christian church rituals as, as, a, as an example. The idea that, that smoke is something that could be blown over a sick person, possibly, to, um, uh, to enact some kind, of, um, some kind of cure. And there are a range of other plants that could be smoked for some kind of physiological, psychological um, effect, uh, although tobacco seems to be the, the best of those. Um, there, there is the Asian tradition of, of the smoking of, of opium and of cannabis, but those didn't catch on in Europe until after tobacco, is my understanding. Um, Walter Raleigh uh, was the guy, to my understanding, who, who popularized uh, pipe smoking in, um, in England, and even to the point where one monarch, one of the Jameses, I want to say James II, Second, yeah. he, uh, issued a counterblast to tobacco, which was you know, basically kind of the moral majority statement, um, just say <laughs> no for, for, right. the, uh, for the 17th century. Um, 
there's also I don't know if there, there's a there's a pretty funny Bob Newhart bit where where it's supposed to be Walter Raleigh trying to explain to someone what smoking is because when you think about it taking and intentionally lighting a piece of plant on fire and then inhaling the noxious vapors is is a counterintuitive practice um to 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 say the least but again such is the power of nicotine it is it is mm-hmm. a fairly insidious molecule in it first lifts you up but then it drops you back down you know it's got kind of a biphasic um uh function where where it actually has two sequential and paradoxical effects on one another mm-hmm. so you've got the stimulant and the depressant um kind of kind of in 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 one in one package and uh it certainly leaves the user um wanting wanting more of it i mean it's almost the uh the the perfect intoxicant as far as that goes you know it it gives you a, definitely a a physiological and psychological effect and its negative um its negative effects while very real as we all know they take you know 20 30 years to really kick in and given the lifespans we would have been talking of back back at this time period that would have right. been pretty pretty small potatoes compared to you know smallpox or something of course but what about what Raleigh's uh does do we have any information on Raleigh's experiences and how he brought it back to England etc i mean do we know much about that you know that information is probably out there but i i have to plead ignorance on on the exact path that it, that it took i know that 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 he he i mean he was you know uh, up up and up until um you know his star fell in his in his later years but when right. when it was up there he was a rock star you know and yes, and was. Uh, was, yeah. and uh you know a, a rock star today starts doing something especially in a very status and fashion conscious culture like like Europe or England in the 1600s people are going to emulate that of course so uh, let me ask you this: How about the? Uh, you said that the strength of, of uh, indigenous tobacco was very, very strong. Let's talk about other intoxicants. Sure. In the what else do we know? I mean, obviously, peyote was a big deal, mm-hmm. um, and is obviously well documented for South America and, and to some degree to the Southwest. What other intoxicants are there? And, and maybe even talk a little bit about. Uh, uh, mushrooms and peyote. Sure. Well, I mean, psilocybin mushrooms uh, also have a pretty heavy distribution in in sort of the Trans-Pecos region, Mexico Hi. and and uh, and uh, and Texas. Texas. Um, you know, most of your most of your actual hallucinogens, you know, um, drug compounds that specifically have the effect of inducing visual. Or extra somatic hallucinations. Um, most of those tend to be southwestern Mexican, you know, and getting down into Mesoamerica and South America. There aren't a lot of true hallucinogens in the Americas. The closest thing we have, and it's one of the most widespread of all of these, is a plant called Datura 
which we would know better as Jimson weed. Um, you actually find it as a as a um, a weedy flowering plant in a lot of garden plots uh, these days. It goes by a range of of titles: thorn apple, Jimson weed being the closest to it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, these have this plant. There's a, a range of species, but all of them have in common uh, really, really powerful um, deliriance, particularly a compound called scopolamine and another mm-hmm. called atropine. Now, that, that I-N-E ending, ene, tells you it's an alkaloid, um, which is of the same class of, care, of compounds as nicotine, cocaine, cocaine, uh, morphine, heroin, and, and, and so forth. Of course, so, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this, this is one of those. Here, they're, they're hallucinogens, but, but hallucinogens of an extraordinarily powerful sort. I mean, you know, I've, I've talked with people and read interviews with people who, who have, you know, tried lysergic acid, LSD, psilocybin, sure. and other kinds of things. And it's sort of like, I, I look at it more of, of, you know, altered reality or augmented reality. You know, you, you can still see the chair in your bedroom. It just happens to be glowing a little bit, something like <laughs> that. You right. know? Whereas with Datura, um, you don't see the chair. You don't see anything, but you do think that you're being chased by zombies. You know, I mean, it, it, it's got powerful hallucinations that take over your, um, your entire reality. Um, and there's also the problem that the lethal dose of atropine and, and scopolamine is only a little bit above the effective dose. So if you get the dosage wrong, you can stop your heart. Um, so I think that scopol- I think that there, there has been some theorizing. Joe Winter, whom I mentioned earlier, put it out there that um, the the go-to uh, psychoactive for Native Americans was Datura probably going back as far as, as the end of the Pleistocene when natives first came over into this continent. Um, and yet it was so tricky to use that it required highly specialized training of some sort of shamanic specialist. And then once they encountered tobacco coming up from, from South America quite some time later, 5,000 years or more later, they realized that they had something that would give them the effects they wanted, um, but was much more controllable, much safer, did not require the kind of, of um, pharmacological expertise that Datura did, something that would be, if, if, if I may, you know, an, a, a hallucinogen for the masses that could serve um, a much more uh, uh, more common purpose. Do you think a if we're talking about let's say more complex societies that emerged, and I'm thinking of the Midwest and mm-hmm. and, and the Southwest, uh, do we think that these types of drugs or hallucinogens were widespread within the populace, or was it confined, say, to the uh, to the priests and to the higher ranks, to the elites of society. You know, if you look at if you look at some of the big um, late historical mound cultures of of the Mississippi Valley, um, like Cahokia, yeah, like Cahokia, yeah. 
There's a site quite, I, I believe it's quite near Cahokia called the BBB Motor Site. And um, there's one vessel from that site that had Datura seeds actually in it. And that was supposedly a ritual context, the sort of thing that may very well have been associated with a priest. However, I've gone through, um, you know, museum catalogs in my pipe research, and when you're looking at early periods, there are stone pipes, onesies and twosies here with a burial. Occasionally, you may have an anomalous site. There's a couple of Hopewellian sites that have several hundred platform pipes all burned up and smashed in one in one big cache. But for the most part, you're talking about a handful of pipes in, in, in various burials. By the time ceramic pipes become a going concern and you can really mass produce pipes in large numbers the mississippians would would have dozens of these in their in their mound sites so, so i think ceramic technology democratized pipe smoking more mm-hmm. than um than tobacco itself ever did but at the same time it looks like there was another tradition of um you know the 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 heavy the heavy guns if you will of their hallucinogenic armory were still in the hands of of um of experts and we will be back with our final segment on this very fascinating topic of hallucinogens pipes and uh native america we'll be back after these words Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Ooh, Are you happy with just accepting and passing along what the media, politicians, and government are feeding you? Or are you positively sick of it? It's time to get the real facts and form your own decisions. It's time to awaken the sleeper within you. Each week, host Dr. Nick Castellano will uncover various viewpoints and topics designed to inform and present the truth. Today's masses are manipulated by media coverage, and we will not become sheeple. Tune in to Awaken the Sleeper, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening. 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We have spent the better part of this hour with uh, Dr. Sean Rafferty discussing aboriginal uses of uh, hallucinogens, tobacco, pipes, and the distribution of the uh, plants themselves across North America. One of the ways in which the detection and analysis of these materials is accomplished is by looking at the organic residues of uh, the materials, in this case tobacco, on the uh, vessels and implements in which they were used. Uh, Sean, why don't you tell us a little bit about your own chemical work on trying to detect the residues and what you can interpret based on your analyses? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, the, the, the question got started when, when we were observing that, uh, you know, if you look for actual, the usual kind of evidence for plant use, like if you're studying, you know, again, maize farming, you look for, you know, obviously domesticated maize kernels and then you radiocarbon date them, you know. You kind of can't do that for tobacco for a few reasons. One, tobacco seeds are so small, like head of a pin small, that they're almost impossible to recover, even if you're wet screening. And if you consider that smoking itself, you're kind of literally burning up the evidence as you're using it. So of course, there's, yeah. A, yeah, there's a serious preservation issue. So we the the dates for tobacco the earliest date we had in you know east of the mississippi was from a site in illinois called the smiling dan site and that was 200 ad but we had pipes that were over a thousand years older than that the question was is there residues on those pipes that we that can tell us what they were used for of course so um yeah that's what i did i went and looked at at hundreds of pipes in various collections smithsonian institution harvard's peabody museum and stuff and and tried to find um re, you know pipes with actual residue in them 99% of what i looked at had been washed so no joy there but on on a couple of them i found some residue and uh when i um scraped that ran it through i mean it's basically a percolator you know like a coffee percolator of course but yeah. instead of instead of percolating water through coffee grounds, you're percolating a solvent through the actual residue, and then you concentrate what you get at the bottom, what would be the coffee, but is here hopefully solvent full of nicotine, and I would inject that into a instrument called a um, gas chromatograph mass spectrograph. And I'll spare everybody the, 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 the techie details, but basically it's a way of saying in this substance there are X number of compounds of Y varying strength. And um, I was looking for nicotine, and um, in a couple of, of, of those pipes I found it. Or rather, I found decay products that nicotine breaks down into over thousands of years. 
so yeah, that's what I was what I was able to do is um, is even long after the actual um, seeds had decayed away or weren't even present, just on the kind of gooey residue that adheres to the walls of uh, of the pipes, I was able to get um, enough of those uh, to to show that yes, this was used for tobacco. I think we should just. Uh, uh update the listenership and tell them that in the past 20 years, gas chromatography and the uh, very fine and refined analysis of perishable substances uh, has become very, very sophisticated, and we can reconstruct the diets and the uh, hallucinogenic elements as well, as you've obviously done, by applying these very, very uh, scientific and... um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, yeah, the work that I did is crude by by modern standards. There's certainly been an explosion in this kind of molecular archaeology area. Um, but still, I will say, relatively little of this research has been looking at at uh, intoxicant plants. A lot of it's still looking at at um, at subsistence plants. But um, yeah, getting no, back the, to your original point, that's yeah, true, yeah, yeah. But it, it's a hugely powerful technology that that you know really if you you can look at a at a ceramic vessel now and you can figure out you know exactly which compounds were in it, which substances it was used for. You know, this was this held camel milk, or as opposed to we think it had some kind of liquid in it. It's been it's been really transformational, and and I was you know very happy to play whatever small part that I that I have um, as I said you know I kind of um, just because the, the question happened to come to me first um, as I said it was kind of by accident I was the first person to really publicize tobacco um, archaeometric work of this sort and there have been a handful of people who who have um, been following up on this and and who have uh, you know, better labs and better equipment to work with than 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 I could have dreamed of when I was doing this stuff. You know, right. close to twenty years now. And and the logical outcome of this type of work, again, to those of us, those of you who are a little new to this, is that eventually this becomes a signature, and you're able to track what type of um, tobacco was smoked when and where and by whom. Yeah. And that's the ultimate uh, the ultimate goal. And certainly. Uh, and you can fill us in on this. This is not such a far-fetched thing to do. No, it's not. I mean, all you need is is you know a widespread sample of of um, of pipes from a range of of, uh, of contexts of of varying ages across the continent. They have to be fairly recently excavated, and that's simply because the protocol for sure. yeah for preservation. Um, and and you know most most pipes. That of the sort that I was interested in, where a lot of them were excavated back in the 1800s, and they've been sitting on museum shelves for um, you know er- ever since then. Right. So that's so two problems. We just have a few more minutes sure. left. Let me put you on the spot here. Okay. What would you say was the most widely utilized hallucinogen or drug uh, in North America in the pre-European contact days? Oh. Um, I mean, in certain localized areas, you might have like like if you're in the area where peyote is 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 native or or can be traded, then probably that. But if you're talking on a continental scale, then then tobacco, no 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 question. 
And tobacco's range, I mean, we talked about the difficulty in trying to map out the distribution pathways. I assume eventually that will happen. But uh, how extensive was peyote use? Peyote use is, is primarily limited to the, the the desert southwest in between um, right. you know, in, in between the border states and 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 Mexico. So and and there was some limited tra- um, trading of of peyote buttons a little farther out that, but it's it's uh, you know very important to the cultures that are there, but um, not a not a continental phenomenon. And you, you could say the same of other compounds like like um, mezcal beans or of um, uh, psilocybin and and so sure. forth that that are present but but are not like you know they're, they're regional phenomenon as opposed to uh, you know the uh, the the big um, material the big plant of choice for the entire continent is is by far tobacco I mean there is ethnohistoric evidence that even hunting and gathering groups at the time of contact who didn't grow anything grew tobacco you know um they they made an exception for for tobacco or they at least had someone they could trade for it with even if they weren't you know farmers themselves tobacco was so ubiquitous that everybody used it even those who didn't grow anything else yeah going back to your point that um and probably i would say that uh, the expansion of the use is invariably linked to the uh, emergence of the technology I agree. Yeah, and and again, you know, we we can't we we talk a lot about the cultural significance of this plant, and that's important. But we also have to keep in mind that that uh, pipes were drug delivery devices for a very potent drug that that had uh, um, a a wide distribution as part of that uh, as part of that pharmacological effect. I want to thank my very special guest, Sean Rafferty for this very engaging discussion on pipes, smoking, and hallucinogens generally. Sean, thanks a lot for your appearance here, and uh, we'll be following up and probably finding out what you've been doing as your research progresses. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Joe. This has been great. Okay, thank you, and good evening. We'll see you next time. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.